You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Amen. Please be seated. Let's turn to God's Word, and we're looking at the book of Isaiah. And over the Christmas season, we're going to continue to look at that book because, uh, as it happens, the two chapters we're looking at are very much focused on Christ. So we're at Isaiah chapter 61. I'll uh, read these verses and then we'll go through them. It's entitled, The Year of the Lord's Favor in the NIV. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, My people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Well, these are great words, and they are words of um, just tremendous significance and tremendous encouragement. If you're new here, maybe actually might be somebody here who's pretty well new in the Christian church altogether. One of the words you'll hear a lot is gospel. And it's a word that just simply means good news. And in, this, in these verses, we're told about this being a good news to the poor. What is that good news? I just want you to take a second to think about what would be good news for you. That if you got this news today, it would bring a big smile on your face. And even though you might be a Presbyterian, you might just do a little secret dance of delight. Uh, because it's good news. For example, let's just think about it. Um, you go home and there's a genuine check for £20,000. Not someone from Nigeria who's offering you £10 million because their, their partner died. But there's, there's £20,000. That's going to bring a smile to your face. That's good news. Maybe, uh, incidentally, good news for the poor. Why do you think so many poor people play the lottery? Because, um, basically, people have been fooled into thinking, this will sort all my problems. Good news? You've got troubles at home? 
You go home and you discover that your wife or your husband who's left you has come back. Or your child who's gone completely off the rails has come back. That's good news. Good news, you're in prison and you're set free. Good news, that scan that you were dreading, you open up the letter from the NHS and it tells you you're clear, absolutely clear. There's no cancer. That's good news. Good news, you're unemployed, you get a job. I mean, all these things are good news. And um, we, would, we would all rejoice at any of these things happening to us. Is that what has been spoken about here? What's the good news to the poor? Now, I, I think that the Christian church is making a fundamental error, even evangelicals. What we're doing is we're taking, this is what people would think is good news, and let's offer it to them. When what Jesus does is he comes and he offers us something that is beyond even these things. So we're going to look at this. Um, this passage is of great significance in this building because uh, its founder minister, if you like, Robert Murray McShane, every November he preached from this passage on the anniversary of his induction to St. Peter's. Um, I've just written an article about this, by the way, which is now on the St. Peter's website. But even much more significantly is the passage we have before us in Luke 4, 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was some sermon. Jesus goes in and the habit, you go into the synagogue and as a visiting, if you like, teacher, takes the scroll, unwinds the scroll, reads it out, puts it down and then says, this is about me. And you wonder at the reaction. I mean, this was going to be no boring sermon by your average rabbi. This was a teacher who's saying the most shocking things. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Jesus is saying that he is the anointed spirit-filled one who fulfills this promise and brings the spirit and the word to his people. So, uh, we're going to go through this, and to me, there's just such depth and such beauty, and I hope in this, and I hope that you grasp something of why this is really just the most astounding news. We'll start with verses 1 to 2, the verses that Jesus just quoted. Um, he's talking about freedom. He's talking about being released. Now, it's interesting that this comes from the sovereign Lord. It's not a God who does not know or a God who does not have power. And again, so often when these verses are preached, it's along the lines of God wants people to be free. God wants people to be released and, uh, and God can't do it. He wants us to do it. It's a, it's a call to political action. It's a call for human beings to act. This is what Jesus would like. This is what he really, really wants. But he's powerless. 
But that's not what this passage says. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God of the Exodus. This is the God who rescues his people from the oppression of Egypt. And he is the God who will rescue his people today. He is the God. He's bringing good news to the poor. See, a lot of people will say good news to the poor is to go to the poor and just simply say, well, we really, really like you. And we really, really sympathize with you. And we really, really wish you well. And maybe the government will do something. But this is God coming and giving us good news. Good news to the brokenhearted. Good news to the captives. Who are the poor in this context? They are the downtrodden and disadvantaged. They are those who are helpless. Those who are at the mercy of powerful people and circumstances. This is not just idealizing material poverty. This is saying to everybody who realizes they're weak and helpless. This is good news for you. This is not good news to the strong. You're sitting here and you're saying, I don't need any of this Christianity. I'm sorry, this is not good news for you. Because you're satisfied in yourself. You don't need good news. You do, but you don't think that you do. And therefore, you won't hear it. But for those who are broken and those who know that they are weak, this is incredible news. It's for the brokenhearted. And the word that's used here is a word which covers every human breakdown. Whether breakdown in relationships, breakdown in self-confidence, breakdown within our minds, discouragement, depression, conviction of sin, feeling of despair. This is Jesus coming and saying, I've got good news to you. And you're so broken and so hurt and so wounded and so cynical. Your temptation is to roll your eyes and go, yeah, right. I don't believe that, but it is. It's good news that brings this release, this freedom. And here, this is clearly tied in with the year of slavery. When it talks about, in verse 2, the year of the Lord's favor, that's referring to uh, the Old Testament year of jubilee, when the slaves were set free. In that culture and context, society worked through slavery. Um, we might say that we don't do that, but in a sense, we do because it's, you know, you're being paid for your labor and so on. And sometimes that was the only way that people could live. And, but in Old Testament society, you were told that you had to get rid of your slaves. You had to set them free on the year of Jubilee. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've come to set you free. He rubbed and reinforces that with, this is for the captives, for those who are in prison. And that's great news. But what does it mean? Was it to be taken absolutely literally? Take, for example, I think this is a really interesting example, John the Baptist. This is quoted to John the Baptist. He knows it. Good news to the poor, the binding of the brokenhearted, the freedom from the captives, and the release from darkness. And there's John the Baptist, as he's in prison. And he's told, this is the Messiah, this is the one come, and this is what he is going to do. So John the Baptist, if he was taking this absolutely literally, would go, good, I'm going to get out of here. Instead, he was executed. So how is that good news for John the Baptist? And that's where it's really important to grasp what Jesus is speaking about. Because although all the things I mentioned at the beginning are not unimportant, indeed they are important, what is primarily concerned here, what Christ is primarily concerned here, 
is about our spiritual captivity and our spiritual poverty and our spiritual illness from which all these other things come. Let me give you a, a, a quote from Calvin. It's a bit long, but I, I just loved it, and I, especially the last line. So bear with me. He's talking about this, and he says, Christ is promised to none but those who have been humbled and overwhelmed by a conviction of their distresses, who have no lofty pretensions, but keep themselves in humility and modesty. And hence we infer that Isaiah speaks literally of the gospel. For the law was given for the purpose of abasing proud hearts, which swelled with vain confidence. But the gospel is, attended, is intended for the afflicted. That is, for those who know that they are destitute of everything good, that they may gather courage and support. For what purpose were prophets and apostles and other ministers anointed and sent, but to cheer and comfort the afflicted by the doctrine of grace? Now you see the the key thing here is this, that Christ comes to those who are in captivity, to those who are depressed, to those who are weak, to those who are helpless. And that can actually be any one of us in any circumstance. If you are in material poverty, if you are physically ill, if you are in prison, then your physical circumstances, if you like, are much more likely to show you your spiritual poverty, which is why the gospel has always had a bias towards the poor. Always. It's why one of the easiest places to preach the gospel is prison. Go to prison and you're preaching to the captives. Well, they know they're captives. They're a living analogy of, of illustration of what the gospel is saying. It's also why it's harder to preach the gospel to people who are well-off and healthy and think that they own the world. But that's an illusion on their part. One of the things in this verse that's quite interesting, for me anyway, those of you who are observant will have noticed the contrast between what Jesus says in Luke and what's said here. Because it's the year of the Lord's favor, the last line, the day of vengeance of our God, that's left out. Now, some people might go immediately go, aha, right. That's because Jesus is a lot nicer than the God of the Old Testament, and he's not into vengeance. No, that's not what is being said here. It's not what Jesus is saying. What's interesting is that these verses in Isaiah 61, if you like, are the seed of the gospel. And Jesus' coming is the flower, the reality of the gospel. This last verse, the day of vengeance of our God, wasn't when Jesus came into the synagogue. That wasn't fulfilled. But you will find through the New Testament and through the teaching of Christ and through the teaching of the apostles that that day is yet to come. So all that Jesus was doing was standing up and reading these first few lines and saying, now this is fulfilled. I am the good news. But the day of vengeance is one that is to come. But it goes on, verse 3. Renewal to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Now again, we cheapen this when we reduce it to saying Jesus comes alongside those who are sad. That is true, but it's much deeper than that. I liked someone called this divine replacement therapy. We have to complicate everything with big words. Um, 
There are two verbs here. The first one points to the decision of God. God is going to comfort those who mourn. But the second is that he himself provides everything for that comfort. I find what um, John L. Mackay says here very important. There is no intrinsic merit in grief. It does not of itself sanctify. This is not saying if you mourn, then really you're happy. Because actually that, that often is not true. Often people who mourn have no comfort. But Christ is coming. What kind of mourning is it talking about? To comfort all who mourn is immediately qualified by the phrase, those who mourn in Zion. Provide for those who grieve in Zion. Zion is another term for Israel. It's another term for God's people. Uh, Today, we understand that in terms of the church. What is in view, says Mackay, is spiritual distress, such as experienced by the ideal Zion. Zion, when she lives up to the requirements of her status and displays the spiritual sensitivity which should characterize the people of God, then Zion will be grieved by the impact of sin on the world around her and the fortunes of God's cause on earth and on her closeness to Yahweh himself, which is impaired by her own misconduct. Those who are disconsolate for such reasons will have their lives transformed by the ministry of the Messiah. Now you see what is being said here. It's not just that God is saying, or Isaiah is saying to us, God is saying to us through Isaiah, look, if you're sad, God will bless you. It's saying, if you grieve and mourn for the right reasons, God will come to you. And I find a great comfort in this in different ways. You see, to be a Christian is not to be released from pain or sorrow or suffering. In fact, If you are a spiritually sensitive Christian, if you are sensitive to the people around you, if you are sensitive to what's going on in the world, what will happen is you will feel the pain and the sorrow much more than if you were desensitized and immune from everything. And yet, those of us who find ourselves struggling with sorrow at what we see going on around us and overwhelmed by our own sinfulness and sinfulness in the church and what's going on in society. The Lord's message to us is very, very straightforward. Blessed are you who mourn. You will be comforted. And here's an interesting thing. If you never mourn, will you ever know the comfort of God? I doubt it. And look what he does. He starts at the top. He goes to the head, the crown. You wear this crown of, of beauty to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Ashes, you, you took ashes if you were sad and sorrowful. You took ashes and you, you would place them on your head or, or, or on your clothing. But instead of the ashes, you get the crown of beauty. You get the heavenly outpouring of joy. Of praise instead of despair. You get this garment of praise. And it's the idea of a cloak which covers over all of our life. And again, here's the fascinating thing. What Jesus is offering is not just new clothing. It's not just a kind of makeover. It is a new life. In fact, it's the ultimate makeover. It comes from within as the Spirit works in our lives. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. 
They will be called oaks of righteousness. Now, I want to say just a little bit about this. The weak reeds moving. For, earlier in Isaiah, it's spoken about being broken and being weak and so on. And here, to oaks. Now, oaks are sturdy, they are strong, and they are fruitful. And this is a planting of the Lord. Let me, um, I'm going to take a wee sidetrack here and talk about the oaks of righteousness just a little bit. I think that we, I want to think a little bit about older people. And forgive me for speaking to you, but also to speak to the younger people about the older people. I've been reading something from Oz Guinness, which I found really fascinating, where he speaks about generationalism. And I think this is happening in our culture, and I think we in this church need to be aware of it. I see it happening in the church all the time. Now, what is generationalism? Generationalism is this, where you take one generation and you ascribe particular attributes to it, and you say you belong to it. So you've got the baby boomer generation, or from the 1980s, the millennials. I'm sick and tired of hearing church people going, we need to reach millennials. So they're a separate category. Everyone's a separate category. Now, I think that one of the problems here is that we create this generational divide, which for me is actually all the devil, but it's also tied in with consumerism and other things as well. Guinness says this, the rapid acceleration of life has led to a serious discontinuity of the past including an absurd anti-oldies movement. Now, what is the rapid acceleration of life? It's things moving on very, very quickly. Generational changes occurring very, very quickly. So that, for example, my parents could never have, con- have conceived of the world that we live in now, and I suspect I can't conceive of the world that, that my kids or grandkids will live in. And we've generationalized things in that way. And we think it's a good thing. So we we do have this idea of we're a church for millennials. Well, if you are, I hope you die because it's wrong. It's just wrong to create churches for particular generations. That's going along with the culture and we have to be countercultural. Guinness says this, anyone stronger than we are is automatically a tyrant and anyone who's older then is automatically the past. So... Because they are of the past, we reject them decisively. The kind of arrogance that you have as a 14-year-old spotty teenager, well, I'm speaking from memory, um, is that, you know, I know, I know better than my parents, I know the whole world. But in actual fact, that's become a generational thing. So we know so much better now. And we know more than our elders. And that gets reflected into the church, where... I've even heard church leaders go, they're not our demographic. These older people, they're not the ones that we're trying to, we're going for the church of the future. And it's appalling. And that's why you, you, you end up with such dysfunctional churches. Again, Guinness asks these two questions. These are people who say, what has the future ever done for us? What can the past ever say to us? You live in the now, you live in the moment. And because of that, you are unbelievably shallow unbelievably shallow, disconnected from what's gone in the past and not caring about what happens in the future. I think it's Dostoevsky and 
Um, it's a quote from memory, so I'll probably get it wrong. But it's along the lines of, he says, why should I care or love people who I will never meet? And he's speaking about the future. Who cares? Let's just burn all the nation's money right now. Why, why plan for the future at all? Since, first of all, I'm not going to be in it. And secondly, they're all going to die and the whole thing's going to collapse anyway. And we live in that culture where there's this despising of the older because they're on their way out. And yet here, using this phrase, oaks of righteousness, I'm sorry, to become an oak, you need to grow and you need to become sturdy. And I want to say this, that if you're a younger person here, then you need to find older people who've been following the Lord for many years because they are oaks of righteousness and they will impart to you far more than anything you will read or see or hear, you need to get to know these people because they're the real deal. And I want to say to the older people, please do not fall for the trap of our culture and say, well, that's it, I'm retiring. Sorry, you ain't retiring till you go to heaven. And I'm not even sure you're retiring then. Forget this idea of retirement. It's not going to happen. Maybe your work has just begun. Maybe your life up till now was fairly trivial, like Moses, till he got going at 80. Um, you have tremendous opportunities. And we need in the church to bridge this generationalism and to have young and old, middle-aged, all different kinds, and to think about the past and to look to the future. One more thing, just an observation. Have you ever thought why it is that atheists have far few children? It's a generalization, but it's true. The reason is because they don't look to the future. Everything is always about the now. And about the now, children can be a pain. About the now, we don't need them. They're not thinking of the generations that are yet to come, whereas the Christian is thinking of the generations that are yet to come that will yet praise the Lord. So there's renewal. Took far too long on that. Four and five, we'll do it a wee bit quicker. There's uh, rebuilding. There's rebuilding of our lives. We're given a new status, a new name, with new powers. We have new activities. We can rebuild the past. We, we can recover the years that the locusts have eaten. It's an incredible picture that God comes to you and says, look, much of your life has been a ruin. Much of your life has been a waste, but we can rebuild it. It's not just forget it. It's not just start all over again. It's to rebuild. Some people see these verses as a bit nationalistic, uh, as though it's about Israel enslaving other nations, but it's not. It's just simply saying that there will come those from outside who serve the people of God, who take their place within the serving community of the people of God. In the New Testament, we see it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is 1 Peter 2.9. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter is writing to people who were not born as Jews, or many of them anyway. And they're by, by definition, by birth, by race, by religion, they're excluded. 
And then because of Christ, they're included. Or as it says in Ephesians, as this dividing wall of partition is taken down. Once you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. And here is the most incredible thing. You could walk into this church off the street, never having been in church, having lived a rotten life, being utterly ruined and wrecked in your life, being the most horrible of people perhaps. And Christ says, you can come. Come in. And you can be part of this new priesthood where we serve and help one another as we serve and help God. There's good news for absolutely everybody. Verses 6 and 7, you'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. And it talks there about rejoicing. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. You get these riches. Now, here are the riches. The riches are not material wealth. The riches is glory. Revelation 21 uses this verse and and puts it this way. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The glory and honor of the nations. And it's the opposite of shame. Shame is more than embarrassment. Shame is disappointment. Shame is fraud. Shame is a false life. Shame is that feeling that you have, that you have let your parents down, that you've let your family down, that you've let your work down, you've let yourself down, you've let your country down, you've let God down. Shame is what many of us live with. And Jesus says, I'm going to exchange that. I'm going to take the poverty of your shame and give you the riches of my glory. And he goes even further. And he says, I'll give you a double portion. A double portion. Uh, I, it's maybe a trivial illustration, but uh, I went to the new fancy fish and chip place down at the bottom of Perth Road and I asked for uh, a portion of fish and chips and uh, they gave me a double portion, which would have been really nice if Annabelle had been at home, but I was there by myself. I had, I had to do it. I couldn't, I mean, they were absolutely brilliant. They were glorious, but it was really nice of them. They just said, we'll give you a double portion. Since there's no mushy peas, we'll give you a double portion. And it was great. In a way, what God is doing here is he's saying, look, here's your rags. Here's your, your shame. I'm taking it and I'm giving you glory. And he said, just for double measure, for good measure, I'm giving you a double portion. It's a reward. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people. What's God saying? See, this is where people misunderstand grace. God is just. He hates the wrongdoing. He hates robbery. His people have been wrongly treated. His people have been abused. And he's saying, there's going to be a great reward for my people. The misunderstanding of grace is this, is to conceive of it as God just forgiving. He's not just forgiving. Grace or forgiveness comes at a great price. It's the price of the atonement. God's justice is not just seen in punishment, but also in his forgiveness purchased by Christ on the cross. That's why those people who profess to be Christians and then say, I don't like the cross and I don't like the atonement and I don't like Jesus dying for us and it just doesn't make God look nice, it doesn't feel good, they are not grasping what the gospel is because the gospel is not God saying, well, I'll forgive you because I'm nice. It's God saying, I will forgive you even though your sin deserves hell. I will forgive you because of what Jesus has done. 
And it's a fantastic promise because in a world that's full of insecurity and fear, the covenant promises of the Lord provide what is reliable and just totally assuring. God does not cheat. God does not defraud. God always keeps his commitments. And what he gives never, ever fades. So we can rejoice. We get this great reward. And then lastly, there's restoration. Their descendants will be known among the nations. Remember, this is a people who are very small. This is a people who've been beaten down. And he's saying, he uses the two words, descendants and peoples, the same word. It both means seed. And it's saying, instead of being this tiny, tiny sub-tribe of a tribe, you will be recognized throughout the world. And it's the Lord who's glorified in that. Second Thessalonians 1.10, on the day Jesus comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. People will acknowledge you are a people the Lord has blessed. God is saying to his people, you're tiny, you're pathetic, you're mocked, you're abused, you're trivialized. This generation doesn't want to know. But there will come a time when all the nations of the world will acknowledge that you are a people who are blessed by the Lord. I've always been intrigued by Pascal's statement that one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the Bible is the survival of the Jews. I think that is true. I think that the fact that the Jewish people are still around. But even, possibly even more amazing than that, is the fact that the Christian church is still around. Every couple of years, you get yet another prophecy saying, unless the church adapts and changes, unless da 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 the church is going to die, the church is going to die. And you know this, uh, every year of my life, the church has continued to grow. I'm not talking about just here. I'm not talking about in this country. I'm talking about throughout the world. The church is not going to die. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So, where does all this take us? The good news is still being preached. This is still the year of the Lord's favor. This is still the day of salvation. This is the time of freedom, the time of justice, the time of release, the time of joy. We're being asked to, or the men's reading group, are being asked to read uh, Sinclair's book on the whole Christ, which is a commentary and. For those who don't know, it just sounds so dull. It's a commentary on uh, an old Scottish theological dispute about something called the marrow of modern divinity. But I think it goes to the heart of the gospel. And here is why. The marrow men, as they were called, would say that Christ is dead for you. And that there's good news for you. And people will say, no, no, you can't say that. You don't know that. How, how can you say this? How can you go and say this to everybody? Who are God's elect and so on? 
Well, I think we can. I think we go to everyone and say, we've got good news for you. What I've been looking at this morning, what we've been seeing this morning, is something that you could go to your neighbors. We can go to everyone in this city. We can go to everyone in this country. We can go to everyone in the world. We can go to people of every religion, every background, and say, listen, I've got good news for you. Whatever your religion says, whatever your society says, whatever your culture says, I've got really good news for you. And this is, the, for me, the key thing about this good news in how we communicate is it's not news like the kind of information you get on Google or Wikipedia or in the paper that you read and you read it as a disinterested observer going, oh, that's okay, that's interesting, but I don't know about that one. This is someone running to you and giving you really good news. And it's good news that demands a response. It is news that's about you. It's not news that says, this has nothing to do with you. You're being told because it's got everything to do with you. It's like getting an invitation. You go home, open up a letter. There's an invitation. Her Majesty the Queen would like your presence. At a little do I'm having down at Buckingham Palace. Well, she probably wouldn't put it that way, but demands a reply. Or let's say this happens to you. You're just out walking with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, Let's say you're a young lady walking out with your boyfriend. And all of a sudden he drops on his knees and says, will you marry me? You don't go, hmm, that's good news. You don't. It demands a response. Or you get a phone call saying your application for this job or your application to the University of Dundee has been accepted. And again, it demands a response. Are you going to come? Are you going to take the job? Well, in Isaiah 61, and I've only scratched the surface of it, what is being announced to us is incredibly good news, which the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord takes and says, look, here you are, and you can... This is what I'm providing for you. Freedom, beauty, release from darkness, comfort, the oil of gladness, a garment of praise, the opportunity to rebuild the ancient ruins, joy, all these things. I'm bringing you news about them. I'm not offering them as potential. I'm not saying if you do this, 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 and this. I'm saying... This is what Jesus is. This is what Jesus brings. And the only thing that now matters is what you think of Christ. Because if you believe this, and you turn around and you say, nah, not really. I'm not interested. I don't think you've grasped it. Or if you hear it, and you say, yeah, let me look at the small print. Let me look at the terms and conditions. I don't think you've grasped it. It's not a contract. It's not a kind of offer that that you're kind of equal to. This is God coming to those. And I think this is why you probably do need to be weak and broken. And he's saying, I'll make you whole. But Lord, I can't give you anything. That's the point. I'll make you whole. But Lord, I've not... Uh Uh-huh. That is the point. One of the things that strikes me is is about Isaiah, that he's always amazed at the grandeur of the grace of God. 
And he always goes deeper into it, and so should we be. If you are not a Christian, this really is good news for you, and you need to pray now for Jesus, to accept Jesus. People use that phrase, and, and it just means, you know, so many different things, but I just think it means just accepting the good news that Jesus brings, that you are a sinner, but his grace is sufficient to forgive you your sin and to give your life to him. And if you are a Christian, you need to acknowledge this. We, stop your moaning. Stop saying, oh, but Lord, why haven't got this? Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. Lord, you promised this, 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 and this. You say, well, listen, you are a people the Lord has blessed. We're praying for Murdo Murchison, and some of you will know him, others don't. Murdo's a good friend. He was converted in uh, Kyle of Lochalsh when he was still at school, but at the same time that I was converted across the other side of that county. And he has served the Lord all his life as a secondhand car dealer, which doesn't sound a very, you know, spiritual profession, but it is, of course it is. He's been an honest and godly servant of God. And he's got uh, terminal cancer. He's been told he has three months to live. He's going to have an operation tomorrow, which may or may not extend that. We're praying for his healing and so on. Murdo's not been someone who's into um, social media and Facebook and so on, but he started a blog, and it's very moving to read it. Very, very moving to read it. Because you know what he wants to do? He wants to testify to the grace and goodness of God throughout his life before he dies. Now, God may yet heal him. At some point, he will die, and he knows that. That's not the important issue for him. The important issue is this, that the Lord has set him free, and that's what we all have. And if we are Christians, we need to pray that we would understand in far greater depth what is being spoken of here, this release and this freedom and this joy. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this promise was made 3,000 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago, and that this promise was fulfilled when Jesus came and stood up in that synagogue and said, it's here. And that this promise still applies to us. That when we come to you as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, you forgive us, you renew us, you restore us. Grant that each of us may do so in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing um, from the squalor. We're into the Christmas carol season, and I think this is an appropriate one. <clears throat> From the squalor of a borrowed stable, by the spirit and a virgin's faith, to the anguish and the shame of scandal, came the Savior of the human race. Let's stand and sing, and please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.